am my own worst enemy. My inner critic tears me down. I eventually give up on anything I start. If you are the kind of person who can't get out of their own head, who doubts, criticizes, and manipulates and insults themselves, almost reflexively, almost like it's another person in your head doing it to you. If you just can't get anywhere in life because you can't let yourself get anywhere in life, this one's for you. This is The Fix. Okay, first, let's do a little review. How do we respond to anxiety? One way is by taking it seriously and recognizing that there's probably a nugget of truth in every anxious, cruel thought we think, every worried, fretting, imaginary scenario. There's probably a shred of evidence. Otherwise, you wouldn't be worried about it. So one way is to take it seriously and show your own mind that you have listened to its concerns and are doing something about it. After that, that gives you the power to start to tell it to shove off. <laughs> Basically, I've already taken care of that. I'm not going to focus on that now. As you can see, I'm doing something about it. And then remember to focus on positive things, primarily and that you get into a pattern of positive thinking when you start thinking positively and you refuse to continue looping on the same anxious thoughts over and over again. Break that cycle. Stop the cycle of negative feedback by interrupting negative thoughts and thinking their positive inverse. Good little review there. And directly relevant to today's topic. Okay, so today we are going to talk about how to get your own brain out of your way. If you've ever wanted to learn something, an instrument, a new career, a new skill, to just change your life in some way, if you have been in a pattern of negative thinking or you haven't been successful in quite a while, chances are your own brain is a pretty serious obstacle. And for most people, it is probably the biggest obstacle, in fact, larger than the actual task ahead of you. What's stopping you from becoming an Olympic swimmer, you know, assuming that this is a feasible goal for you physically, is not the actual task of training and learning how to become an Olympic swimmer. It is that your own brain doubts and controls you at every step until you eventually lose the motivation and can simply not take the steps you know you need to take to become that Olympic swimmer. This is true for most people, and this is true for me, and to you, past Stephen. As you'll recall, none of this show is financial, medical, or legal advice of any kind. I am talking to myself, a hypothetical Stephen, from the past. These are all the things I wish he knew and that I have since learned. So we're going to break this episode up into two parts. The first part is how to begin muting and then eventually turning your inner critic into a cheerleader who is there for you, who is 
instead of tearing you down, for the most part, they're building you up. You're encouraging yourself. You've ever had these thoughts where they're almost self-interrupting, like they're coming from another person, almost as if you've heard the thought rather than you were the author of the thought. Wouldn't it be nice if those thoughts were actually reminding you that you can do more, that you can be better, that you've got this? How much farther do you think you could go in anything you wanted to do in life if that's what your inner thoughts were interrupting you with is, hey, you got this? What would that feel like? That's the objective of the first half. The second half of the episode will be how to build confidence with better goals. With the goal of putting these two pieces together, you can think of this in two ways. You can't do what you want to do if your brain is the primary obstacle in this case, because you can't quite get the motivation high enough, long enough to meet your goal. While at the same time, your goals are poorly engineered. They're set up in such a way that you have to have really high motivation sustained for a long time to be able to accomplish them in the way that you're measuring them, in the way that you're setting them up. And that if you would just set up your goals in a different way, they were engineered to be motivating at every step, then that bar would be a lot lower. You could have days and weeks where you have much lower motivation and yet still feel confident that you're making progress and that you'll hit your goals, whatever they may be. So this is two parts. One is lifting up your sort of baseline motivation and improving your self-talk so that you have the ability to do what you need to do without thwarting yourself. And then it's also bringing down how high you expect your motivation to be on average so that you don't have to be a superstar to make progress and that average, okay, sort of lukewarm motivation days are enough to keep going. So it's better designed too. So we'll talk about this in two pieces. So let's get started on the inner critic part. Now, when you said, I'm my own worst enemy, who is the I in that statement? What does that mean? Now, when I argue with myself, and thus when you argue with yourself, when you're doubting yourself, when you're thinking you can't do this, or this will go wrong, or that will go wrong, it's like a conversation, isn't it? It is like two people talking, maybe more than two people. But there's a definite argument there. And yet we say I as if there was only one person. Why is that? Well, I'll just tell you. Uh, it's like that because it is like that. So if you were to read David Eagleman's book, Incognito, you would learn that there are actually many different selves inside the brain. And I don't mean like the concept of a self, although it is related. There are different parts of our brain that each have their own motivations. They each have their own objectives. And they are literally in conflict with different parts of your brain. Now, they all roll up into a cohesive self at the end of the day, which is why we say I. But I think it's useful to understand that the reason it feels like you're having a conversation is because you are. There are literally different yous that make up the you, and they each want something different. Now, there's a lot of them, and many of them speak through emotions rather than words. 
Um, but they want different things. Some of them want you to fit in socially. Some of them are afraid for your actual survival. Some of them want sex. Some of them want, like, sort of high-minded, long-term things. Some of them are mostly fear-based. Some of them are mostly thinking about how to acquire resources. There's a lot of different yous that make you up, and they are in constant conflict. And many of them are potentially in a very unhealthy state. Now, there's nothing really to fix here. You're not broken. It's normal to behave this way. But you can get your many yous to be in better alignment with each other. Now, they will often... They will often be in conflict. That is their nature. And this conflict can be a beautiful thing or it can be a terrible thing. In a good scenario, the many different yous are in conflict in a way that makes you better. Like training on a sports team. This is the concept of, uh, I think, beneficial rivals. can't remember the exact term. But the idea is that you elevate each other through competition. You make each other want to be better. Each part of your brain serves a purpose, and they all have their own goals. And each of them are trying to help you in some way. So the real goal is to get them to be in a sort of harmonious conflict, where they're all trying to win. They're all taking turns, almost like a dance. And that you know when to listen to which parts, and you know how to adjust how they're behaving so that they don't get in the way of the other parts. When you want the long-term, sort of slow-thinking parts of your brain to set goals that are high-minded and good for you, you kind of don't want the shorter-term parts of your brain to get in the way. And ideally, the shorter-term parts of your brain are aligned, and that they are just as excited because they have a near-term goal that they're excited about. So that's sort of a tease of what's coming. But first, I just wanted to explain the model of the brain and roughly how it actually works. There are different yous in constant combat and influence with each other. In fact, it's the craziest thing in the world, but some of the lower, simpler, older, short-term parts of your brain are significantly more powerful than the slow-thinking intellectual parts of your brain. And in fact, the sort of lower, stronger parts of your brain can implant thoughts in your brain. This is just fascinating. And you, you'll immediately know this is true. Think about any time that you've told yourself, I'm going to eat healthier. And yet, you're also thinking, I really want that candy bar. This is how it's possible to want two different things. Now you know why. It's because you literally do want two different things. There are two different yous inside of you that want two different things. And so the one that wants the candy bar will actually implant thoughts in your head in the sense that it can do things like give you licensing. Like, uh, well, I think that, you know, I've been pretty good, so it's okay if I just do this this one time. Or, well, I'll make up for it later by doing some exercise or eating something. Those kinds of thoughts are implanted. Not always, you know, I'm not a, <laughs> not a neuroscientist. But in general, the stronger parts of your brain have the ability to literally author thoughts on your behalf that sound logical, can sort of reach in to the long-term intellectual parts of your brain and mind control them temporarily so that it can get what, it's, get what it wants because it's stronger. I just think that's fascinating. And perhaps I've mentioned that in the past. But it's worth thinking about. Just because you think something 
doesn't mean this thought is yours and doesn't mean it comes from you. There are lots of yous in you, and many of them are not the kinds of they're not the kinds of thoughts that you want to have. They're not kind, they're not considerate, and they're certainly not wholesome or constructive. It would be nice to be able to change them, and the first step to changing them is to personify the parts of your of your brain. Think of them literally like bickering individuals. And you, the you that thinks of yourself as you, is really just a mediator among them, right? So when they say something like, well, I don't think I'm going to work out today because X, Y, and Z, you can know that that thought isn't necessarily a cohesive thought from the whole. That's just one sort of outspoken individual that's being lazy. And you can begin to personify them as different people. And you can basically just say, eh, shut up, <laughs> you're wrong, right? It's a better model because it allows you to disassociate from your own thoughts. Just because you thought something doesn't mean it's your thought, right? Think of this as two steps. The thought happens and then you weigh it, consciously weigh the thought and decide whether this is a thought you want or not. Do I identify with this thought? Have I decided this thought is mine? You're like a referee. You are not the author of your thoughts so much as you are the editor of your thoughts. Your job is not really to create the thoughts. It's to decide which thoughts you want more of, which ones you want less of, and which ones sort of make it onto the page of your identity. Yes, this is who I am. This is how I'm going to act and behave. So stop associating so directly with your thoughts. Just because you have a thought doesn't mean it's yours. That's a separate step. Do I want to associate with this? Is this thought me or not me? And you can reject them. Okay. Which brings me to the next topic. You may have heard the phrase, you get what you tolerate. All right, all right. So I like this phrase better. You become what you tolerate. When you tolerate trashy thoughts, you can't do this. You're not good enough. There's no way this is going to work. I should probably just take it easy. No, I'm not going to try this now. I'll try this again later. Those kinds of thoughts may seem innocent to let them slip by. It's just one bad day, just one negative thought. But when you allow things like that, you become those thoughts. Remember what I said, you are the editor of your thoughts, not the author. The authoring happens at a lower level. This happens from all the different yous that are basically casting votes, bickering with each other, sort of surfacing up thoughts and feelings. Same with emotions. Whether it's a, a verbal thought or a feeling, like an emotion, it doesn't really matter. You get to decide whether this is your identity or not. That is your job as the editor that sort of sits on top of all of this. Which thoughts and feelings are me? I get to decide. And when you allow a thought to come and go and you identify with it sort of subconsciously, like you just sort of rubber stamp everything. Everything that comes across your desk is, yep, that's me, yep, that's me. You have no agency. You have no control over your identity of who you're becoming. Worse, so when you allow those things to go across your desk as the editor without doing any editing, you are saying, I want more of these thoughts. If you do not shut those thoughts down, any kind of negativity, any kind of criticism which is not helpful, there is a difference 
between sincere concern that is intended to improve you and somebody who is basically just the peanut gallery, just throwing stuff at you, just throwing a stone. You can't do this. You can't. There's no way you're going to be capable of this. You know the difference between those thoughts. You know the inner critic who is criticizing because they genuinely want to make it better. And the inner critic who is actually kind of tearing you down. And you know the difference. Now, edit those thoughts judiciously. Do not rubber stamp anything that comes across your thought desk as the editor. Identify only with the ones you actually want. And calmly and politely reject the ones you do not want. This is a process of gentle correction. You must not overreact to these thoughts. Somebody in your head says, man, we bit off more than we can chew. We shouldn't have done this. You say, no, it's okay. I got this. I don't choose to associate with that. Basically, that's not me. I can do this. Remember this pattern of interrupt negative thoughts with a positive inverse. This is a more contextual application with the nuance that the correction must be gentle. If you overreact and say, no, shut up. I got this. Like, don't talk to me like that. I'm not giving up. Now, there's a place for that dark energy. But if you get into a habit of responding to emotion with bigger emotion, almost like two people arguing louder and louder back and forth in a screaming match, how do you think that ends? Do you think that screaming matches are ever productive? Pretty rarely. Uh, it's pretty safe to say that what you're training is more emotional overreaction. And what you really want to train is calmness. You want to decrease your anxiety, decrease your stress, decrease the negativity. If you respond with negativity, you will get more of it. You become what you tolerate. Your brain does what it does over and over again. If you want something different, all you have to do is start thinking differently. It seems strange, but thought patterns basically control what your inner critic is doing to you. And I don't mean to be cruel or make you feel bad about this, but you need to accept the fact that the reason your inner critic is cruel and self-defeating and manipulative and basically always trying to tear you down is because you allow it to be. And when you think those thoughts, you get more of them. Anything you do or think or feel, you will get more of in the future. Anything you gently course correct away from, almost like, you know, a kindergarten teacher, just calmly, quietly, politely correcting the five-year-old. Oh no, that's not the letter A. It's like this. Just like that. No animosity, no cruelty, no overreaction. Because you train that same response in reverse if you respond with negativity. Just respond with neutrality or even a little bit of positivity if you can manage it. Oh no, not like that. So rather than responding to your inner critic with a screaming match, respond like that calm kindergarten teacher with a five-year-old, not in a belittling way, not at all, but with kindness, respect, and understanding that you've made a mistake and, oh no, no, we don't think those thoughts. That's not how we do that. We do it like this.
This, over time, will create a de-escalation of your inner critic. It will no longer be... It's like putting logs on a fire every time you respond with more animosity. Or worse, you respond by accepting your inner critic's thoughts and believing they are true. Remember, do not let these thoughts become part of your identity. That is your job as the editor. If you have a thought, remember, it doesn't necessarily come from you, you must decide whether you want this thought or not. Does this thought make me the kind of person I want to be? Or does this thought take me farther away from the person I want to be? If it takes you farther away, you calmly and politely reject it. You say, no, this is what I think. This process has to be repeated for a long, long time. But then the good part is that the results are gradual. Like, you'll get effects immediately, but it will take a long time to break the pattern of honestly self-cruelty. Um, it's not just, a, people will tell you, don't be so mean to yourself, as if it were that simple. But in reality, it's more like, don't listen to the mean thoughts. Gently and calmly change them. Don't respond to them with more negativity. Don't respond to them by identifying with them. Respond to them like you would respond, like a stand-up comedian would respond to a heckling member of the crowd. It's best to ignore them, but ignoring them can be difficult as well. Gentle course correction really is best. You are the editor of your mind. Just because one little part of your brain is heckling you doesn't mean that it's true, and it doesn't mean that it's you. You get to decide those things. All right, so next up, I want to talk about where you put your emotional rewards. So most people put their emotional rewards after the completion of a task. I want to exercise three times a week. I will reward myself emotionally or punish myself emotionally based on the outcome. Okay, so if I go for a run three times, then I reward myself emotionally. I'm so proud of myself. But if I got sick or I got too busy and I didn't make time to do it, then I feel bad about myself. This is a dumb thing to do. No offense past me, but here's a better way of constructing rewards, okay? Here's why that was a bad system. And to, let's make it even better. I am going to publish a book by the end of the year. Okay, now there's a million ways for that to fail, right? And we'll get into this in setting better goals that motivate you and give you confidence rather than ones that invite self-criticism. But first, I want to talk about where you put your emotional rewards. If you are only going to feel good about yourself when you've published the book, you're doomed to fail and you're going to hate the entire process. Here's what you should do instead. And the reason is because you are outcome focused. When you hinge whether you feel good or not on an outcome, you are inviting nothing but pain. Nothing but pain. And I'm going to talk about three different ways that I view this, like three different lenses of why this is a bad approach. But in general, when you're placing your emotional reward on the result of something, if it doesn't go well, you feel bad. If it do and you only feel well if it goes well, goes right. And up until the point it goes right or wrong, you have basically no positive incentive at all. If anything, you're a little bit anxious, right? Because you're not sure whether you're going to get to reward yourself or not. So first, let me just say that you get to choose when you feel good about yourself. This is kind of a new concept for some people. But think about it. 
What is an emotional reward? It's basically just like a self-pat on the back, like in your head. It is positive thoughts, like, I can't believe you did that. I'm so proud of you. Or, Dang, look at that. I did that. I did that. I'm trying to do that. I'm making progress here. It's basically just a good job. It's a thumbs up in your head. Most people don't realize that this is not... It's a, They use this almost automatically. They don't consider it to be a conscious, active tool. But it can be that, and it should be that. Just like associating with your thoughts and then rubber stamping every thought and immediately associating with it, like, oh yeah, that's me. I had this thought, so that's who I am. Most people don't recognize that you can do something similar with emotional rewards. They beat themselves up or reward themselves basically on a whim. It has a lot more to do with their mood than whether they want to be that kind of person or not. And they're not conscious of the results of how they structure their own self-reward system. So now I'm going to tell you how to set up a better system. One that, like, doesn't make you hate yourself and be mean to yourself. Alright, so here's the goal. We want a system that makes you feel good and confident and proud of yourself and, like, motivated almost all the time. And even when you fail, you don't want to give up. I think we, that's the outcome we're trying to get to here. And I'm going to describe the emotional reward system that you need to start practicing so that you get that feeling instead of basically doubting yourself at every turn. And the moment your motivation dips, you're, start, you're going to start tearing yourself apart until you give up. That is a bad <laughs> emotional reward system. So here's how I've set mine up. And this works really, really, really well. All right, so it's the three C's. They are courage, clarity, and consistency. Okay, number one, courage. Sometimes I call this one confidence. It's the other, but here's the gist. Do not reward yourself for the outcome, whether it was good or bad. Now, this is a bit of a mind flip for a lot of people. Even if you win, okay? Let's say I want to win the soccer game on Saturday. All right, that's your goal, all right? If you win, you don't reward yourself for winning emotionally. No pat on the back. If you lose, you also don't beat yourself up for losing. This is a rule. This is a decision. This is a conscious thought. This is basically, these are the rules by which the editor will operate. So when a thought comes across your head or a feeling comes through your, bra through your brain and you feel it, let's say you've just won the soccer game. I mean, it's natural to be happy and to be excited. But the moment a thought that comes through your head is like, yes, we won. Nope. Don't associate with that thought. In fact, gentle correction. Oh, no. We don't reward the outcome, good or bad. Now, if you lose. Now, this one is easier for most people to understand. If you lose the soccer game, you think, crap, we lost. I can do better than that. <laughs> basically you're pissed off oh no i don't wrap up my emotions and whether we've won or not it's not about the outcome in fact you don't reward the good or the bad emotionally i'm not saying you should be a robot but this is a conscious decision to stop rewarding yourself or punishing yourself based on the outcome okay this is very very unusual and here's why because you're going to move the emotional reward further up in the process. The emotional reward is 
Did you act with confidence, aka courage, on your goal? That's it. That is what you wrap up your emotion in. Technically, there is another thing that you're going to wrap your emotion in, but we'll we'll talk about that in a second with the third C. But this is the first one. Courage, aka confidence. Did you act with courage, with confidence towards your goal? Did you do the things with confidence as if you actually believed that this goal would happen? Up until the game and through the game and your actual performance at the soccer game, did you do the things that proved you wanted to win, that you were actually trying? Now, in uh, impact theory circles, this is called sincere pursuit. But basically, it's, did I act like, did I say the things, did I think the things that demonstrated that, yeah, I really wanted this? Not, did it work? Did it work has nothing to do with whether you feel good or bad. The only thing, one of the only things, that you put your, wrap up your emotion in is, did I act like this, this would work out in my favor? Did I act from a place of confidence? Was I courageous? Did I do the things I thought I needed to do in order to win? Not did they work, okay? That's separate. So what we're really doing here, and again, we'll talk about this in the third C, is we're starting to separate strategy from effort, okay? We wrap up emotion and effort, but not just effort. In this case, we're wrapping up emotion in sincere pursuit. Did I act like this would work? If I did, I'm so proud of myself. Boom, back paths. Heck yes. All right? Here's why. If you win the game, I'm so proud of myself. Heck yes. I acted like we would win that whole time. I did all the things I needed to do. I believed in myself. I went for it. Not we won the game. It has nothing to do with that. No language about the positive outcome. Just just rewarding yourself for acting as if you would get the positive outcome. Doing the things that were important to get there. Showing up to practice, strategizing with teammates, having uncomfortable conversations about how to get better. Whatever it was you identified that you needed to do. Did you act like you would win? Did you act like you would win up until the point the game was over? If you did, good job. Now, if you lose, Good job. I'm so proud of myself. I did everything I needed to do to win. I really believed in myself. I acted with courage towards that goal. Heck yeah. Same response. Doesn't matter. You're disassociating from the positive or negative part of the outcome. It doesn't matter. Same reward. Either way. The only time you punish yourself, and yes, you still punish yourself. Again, like, as I've said in the past, don't go off the rails. Like, I'm not talking about physical abuse or anything like that. I'm just talking about good job, bad job. Thumbs up, thumbs up. Thumbs up, thumbs down in your head. There is still a place for the, for the stick. People don't use the stick, right? The carrot is great. People use the carrot all the time. And if you have a, if you have a habit of using the stick too much, be careful. Uh, better to, to use it very little, especially while you're still aspiring to do better. Uh, it's kind of an advanced tactic. Like, you don't... Be careful, because this dark energy can be corrosive. But in general, it's useful. If you know, man, I really did not act like we were going to win. I just didn't. Like, 
I gave up long before this game actually started. I never even really put in my full effort. So that's the difference. And that's essentially the stick, right? Is that I can do better. Like, nah, this wasn't good enough. You're, you don't care about the outcome anymore. So that's courage, okay? Second part is clarity. This is essentially a way of measuring fairly. This is being precise about what you want. A lot of people are very ambiguous, especially you, <laughs> Stephen. You're very ambiguous about what you want. Like, I want to be successful. I want to make more money. I want to have good friends. Like, okay, well, what does that mean? And the reason that ambiguity in goals is bad is because ambiguity, especially if you are self-critical and you lean in that direction by default, you have that tendency, ambiguity is another stick to beat yourself over the head with. It will never be good enough especially if you're a perfectionist, it will never be good enough. If you are not precise about what the success condition is, it will never be good enough. You better believe that your own critic will beat you over the head with, well, you got an A, but it was an A minus. So if you're not precise and you just say, I want a good grade on the next test, well, what is good? What is that exactly? When you leave these gaps, this sort of gray area, this ambiguity, that's ammunition for your inner critic, which you are still retraining, politely, calmly, course-correcting your inner critic, back towards an inner cheerleader. No, no, that's not how we behave. We don't think that. You're giving it ammunition if you leave room for ambiguity. Leave no room for interpretation. Be very precise. I want a 95 or higher on this test. So it's clear. And the reason we do this and that's an outcome goal, and we'll talk more about how to make better goals in the next section. You really want input-focused goals. But the gist is that you want it to be clear whether you have succeeded or not, so that you know whether or not you did it, because you, your inner critic will constantly look for ammunition to discount what you have accomplished. Let's say you did get a 94, 95, 96, but you weren't clear. Well, it wasn't 100. Like... It becomes very easy to shut down your inner critic when you have a binary yes or no answer. It's not open for interpretation. You said you would get a 95 on the test and you got a 96. The inner critic says something like, well, it wasn't 100. You can say, well, I wasn't trying to get 100. I was trying to get at least a 95 and I did. I got a 96. Shut down immediately. It, it, allow, it insulates you in a way when you have clear goals. It also, it does a lot more things for you that are not related um, to the task of sort of muting and then reforming your inner critic. But in general, knowing where you're trying to go is critical because it allows you to go there, right? It allows you to go there, but it also lets you know when you have succeeded or not. And that gives you license to basically tell your inner critic to F off, right? Maybe don't respond too powerfully, um, but there's... There's a power in saying, nope, I did exactly what I said I was going to do. And you have the proof because it was binary. There's no room for interpretation on whether you did it right, did it well enough, whether was it good enough. So if you have that problem, the never good enough problem, this is how you solve that. Be precise. Leave no room for interpretation as to where you're trying to go. And finally, the last C, 
is consistency. That is, you need to boil your goals down into habits and systems. And then for the most part, completely forget about the end goal. You are now totally focused on the inputs, not the outputs. Remember that we were talking before about where to put your emotional rewards. You are no longer outcome focused. You don't care whether it succeeds or fails. You don't reward success or fail, and you don't punish failure. You reward sincere pursuit. That is, did I act with confidence? Did I act with courage? Did I act like I thought this would actually happen for me? Did I, did I think the thoughts, feel the feelings, and do the things that showed myself that I thought this would really happen? That is all I pride myself on. And if I don't do those things, that's all I'm disappointed in myself on. That's it. That's the new measure. I am now input focused. And in this way, we do want to separate strategy from effort. And this is how we do this with consistency. If your goal is to lose 40 pounds, first of all, we don't pride ourselves on whether we've lost 40 pounds or not. We pride ourselves on whether we acted in confidence towards that goal. And the way we actually make that happen is we break down that goal into steps, systems and habits that you can repeat over and over again. You don't lose 40 pounds by losing 40 pounds. Like you can just sit down in a chair and clench your fist and just try really hard and then 40 pounds are gone. Like there, you have to do things. There are inputs that you think will get you that output, okay? So the purpose of the third C, consistency, is a reminder that, yo, you need to separate effort and strategy because we often tie up our emotions in whether the strategy worked or not. It, let's say your strategy was to try some new diet or to change your lifestyle. I'm going to do the run three times a week thing and I'm going to eliminate simple carbs in these ways. Like, okay, that's a strategy. It might not work. And then you make yourself feel bad when it doesn't work. But we don't tie up emotion in strategy. We tie up emotion in effort. And I told you how when we talked about courage. All right, so this is the additional nuance. Strategy is a cold, calculating, intellectual exercise. There is no emotion allowed. When you are strategizing a path to a goal, think of yourself like you're in a submarine and you're charting a map through enemy waters. Like... There's no room for, it's, it's not about feelings. It's about how do I actually get somewhere? It's like, or like solving a math problem. All right, how do I figure out how fast the water is going to leak out of this cylinder, given the volume and the width of the cylinder, all, all that stuff, right? How much water is in there? That's a math problem. You need to treat your goal of losing 40 pounds like a math problem. Okay, like a robot. What is the process that I need, that I think will get me there, right? That's your strategy. And from your strategy, you develop these systems and habits that will get you there. Okay, I think that running three times per week and cutting simple carbs from, from breakfast, lunch, and dinner will be enough to get me there by this time frame, right? This is a logical exercise. There's no feelings involved here, okay? Now you have set your habits and systems in motion and now, this is where you employ courage, you forget about the goal of losing 40 pounds. Your new goal is to do the things you said you would. This is where the consistency part comes in. Did you act with courage, confidence, towards the goal, 
And the way you know is, did you do the things you said you would? Did you run three times? Did you sincerely try to run three times? If you hurt your knee or your kid was sick that day, do you make yourself feel bad for not running? Pop quiz. It wasn't your fault. No, you don't. Why? Because you sincerely acted towards your goal. Now, maybe you can try to make it up, but you don't beat yourself up for missing that run because you really wanted to run but weren't able to because something else came up. Gentle course correction. Oh, that's fine. I'll try to make it up, but if I can't, that's okay. Because I know I am acting with courage towards my goals. I am putting in the effort. Now, if you miss five runs in a row, you can bet that it's because you're not putting in the effort. So let's say you do all these things. You reward yourself for the effort along the way. On the days that you miss because you're feeling lazy, yeah, you kind of feel bad. You allow yourself to be disappointed. You let your inner critic do its thing. Don't let it go overboard. Don't let it be cruel. But for the most part, you associate with the thoughts that say, nah, this isn't who I want to be. Like, I want to get out there. I want to lose this weight. I want to feel good about myself again. This is important. You allow those thoughts. Don't let them go too far. But it's okay to feel disappointed. Like, these feelings and emotions have a purpose. Allow them to work their purpose without going overboard. And when you do the things that you said you would, when you go for the run, you pat yourself on the back. You did it. You are doing the things you wanted to do. Okay. Now, let's say you get to the end here. It's been, I don't know, six months or whatever. And you've only lost 30 pounds. Do you reward yourself or do you punish yourself? Pop quiz. It's a sort of a trick question. You feel nothing. That's the answer. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You don't pride yourself on the outcome, good or bad. You feel nothing. It's irrelevant. In fact, when you've noticed a goal is not working, rather than punish yourself, what you do is you go back into robot mode. Ah, the strategy did not work. Therefore, I'm going to do this instead. New path to goal. I think that if I do this, this, and this, I'll be able to get to the goal in this amount of time. Course correction. Gentle course correction. Oh, that didn't work. All right, well, we'll try this instead. Set the new plan. Set the new habits and systems. Pride yourself on whether you are doing the things you said you would do. Are you acting with courage towards the things you said you wanted? If yes, pat yourself on the back. Good job. You're proud of yourself. If no, you can feel disappointed. That's okay. It has a place. Whether it works or doesn't work, no emotion. Strategy is for robots. Okay? Effort is for emotion. Okay? Strategy, robot. Effort, emotion. Okay? Separate the two. Whether it works or doesn't work is irrelevant. All right, so that's all enough for that. And repeat this process over and over again. It takes time. It is a pattern of thought. Just because you don't change overnight, just because your inner critic is still cruel, still interrupts you with self-doubt, know that it will be retrained by the editor. If you do not feed it with more anger and a bigger response back, if you do not feed it by associating with it and sort of saying, oh, yeah, you're right, I suck. Gentle correction. No. That's not how we feel. That's not what we think. I, just repeat the three C's after you. Courage, clarity, consistency. Number one, <laughs> review. 
You start to feel negative thoughts, you just repeat this back to yourself. This is a great counter to the critic. No, I reward myself for acting as if my goal would actually work. Did I actually, did I have confidence? Did I behave like it would work? Yes or no? If yes, I'm proud of myself. That's it. Nope, I get to be proud of myself. I tried exactly as hard as I wanted to. I know that I brought it and it failed miserably. It did not work at all and I did not get the result I wanted. But I am so proud of myself because I know if I just keep going, I will eventually win. Clarity, I know where I'm going, okay? I am precise about whether it worked or did not work so that I have license to tell my inner critic, you're wrong, I did it, I have proof, undeniable proof of success or failure. Even though you don't wrap up emotion in it, this is an additional tool to shut down sort of overly critical thoughts that otherwise would run rampant. And then finally, you can remind your inner critic, nope, I separate effort from strategy. I take the time to strategize, build the habits and systems that I think will get me where I want to go, and I forget about the strategy until it is time to go back into robot mode again and strategize. I do not cross those wires. Do not cross the wires of effort and strategy. You praise or punish effort. Strategy is for robots. No emotion. It does not matter. Robots do not care whether it has succeeded or failed. All they do is chart a new course again, solve the math problem with a new variable. No emotion at all. It is a part for, This is for the logical part of your brain. Okay, so that wraps up that section. This will take time. Just kindly edit your thoughts. Stop associating with the thoughts that come across your desk. Okay? You become what you tolerate. Just because a little part of you is acting out doesn't mean that you have to accept what it thinks as the entire self. You are the editor, and when you stop tolerating your inner critic, it will eventually quiet down and turn into an inner cheerleader. But it takes a long time. It will get better quickly at first, and it will take a long time for it to get to the point where it's the craziest thing in the world, but your own mind will interrupt you to tell you, you got this. Nah, we don't think like that. How crazy is it for you, the sort of author of your thoughts, the person in the chair, in the driver's seat, to actively be thinking a negative thought and associating with it, but having your inner critic, the one that used to tear you down, remember the one that just used to kick you in the shin, laugh, and then tie your shoelaces together, say you're never going to make it? Now they're saying, no, hold up. We don't do that. No, 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 no. We don't pride ourselves on the outcome. Hold up. You did a great job because you were acting like it would work. I'm so proud of you. That's what we think. When your own brain is interrupting you to praise you or to push you forward or to cheer you up, it is the craziest thing in the world. And it is just as good as your current state is bad. Imagine what it would be like to have cheerleaders riding around in your head with you. You can get to that point. I'm not going to say it's you're always there, but I am more there than ever. And it makes sticking to anything not only easier, but frankly more enjoyable. Are you tired of fighting yourself? Are you tired of standing in your own way? Everything I just told you is the way to get better. But it takes practice. 
and it's going to take a long time of practice. All right, let's move on to the next section. I'll probably wrap it up quickly. There will be more goal-setting episodes, I'm sure, but, you know, we'll just cover the basics here. What I really want to cover is that you need to change the way you're engineering your goals past Stephen, because you were setting goals that basically made you feel bad. Now you know how to change your emotional reward system. Now you know how to think of a model of your thoughts, where they come from, and you can think of yourself as the editor. So you've set up a better system such that you're, the place inside of your head is a kinder, gentler, more supportive place, right? It feels like yourselves are pushing you to be better and to encourage you and to help you recover and they're not trying to tear you down anymore well that's great but even with cheerleaders in your head if you're not getting results in the real world eventually you're gonna give up that's just how it is and the fault there is not one of internal motivation it's bad engineering you are setting up goals in a way that are needlessly difficult to achieve kind of arbitrary and are basically designed to fail. So we've talked a little bit about this already. Most people set a goal like, I want to lose 40 pounds, right? That's it. They don't even set a time frame or anything. We already know why that's bad. You need clarity. Timelines are good. And we've already talked about how you want to create habits and systems rather than focusing on the outcome. You're focusing on what are the inputs that will get me the outcome and then really treating hitting those inputs as your goal. Am I doing the things I said I would with confidence that's where all my emotion is, and that's basically where 99% of my attention and effort is going now, is am I doing the things that I thought would get me the victory, not focusing on the victory. Does that make sense? Don't focus on the goalpost. Once you've set the sort of goalpost in the distance and charted your path there, you should be focused on your next step over and over again. Am I doing the steps that get me to the next checkpoint? Not so much, like, forget about the goal. Like, you don't even need to think about it really anymore. You should be thinking about Am I putting in the work that will actually get me the goal? Am I doing the things I said I would? So now we know to be input-focused rather than outcome-focused. But here's another way to set your goals that is more empowering. When people set a goal, often when they achieve it, they feel kind of crappy, sort of hollow inside. There's a moment of, like, serotonin surge, like, yeah, I did it, ha-ha. By the way, we know not to do that anymore. Do, 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 do. We know to praise the journey, the sincere, confident action that would get you to the goal. Right? Losing 40 pounds is already going to make you feel good. Like You don't need an additional reward. <laughs> the re most of our goals are the kinds of goals that just passively make our lives better once we do them. And that is really the real purpose of a goal. Stop celebrating that moment of crossing the finish line as being magical. In fact, stop celebrating it as being any more important than any one of those steps along the race. When you're running a marathon, no one step is more important than the other. In fact, they're all equally important. The step that got you across the finish line is not more important than the 7,000th step. In fact, goals are being completed on a percentage basis. 50% of the way to a goal, for the most part, is 50% as good. And you might be thinking, no, that's ridiculous. If my goal is to get a certification in something and I don't complete the course and get the certification, it was useless. To which I say, not really, that's not true. I will acknowledge that yes, the outcome of getting across the finish line is sometimes binary. 
but you actually do walk away at halfway through with quite a lot more than zero. So I would propose that you reframe the purpose of a goal. The purpose of a goal is to become the kind of person who can accomplish that goal. That's the real goal. The goal is not to be a person who has lost 40 pounds. The goal is to be the kind of person who can lose 40 pounds. This is like wrapped up, this is analogous to the adage, should you teach a man to fish or give him a fish, right? You know, the concept being, if you give somebody food today, you know, they'll be filled today, but they'll be hungry again tomorrow. If you teach them how to get their own food, they'll never be hungry again. This is the same concept and is a good reframe. The purpose of a goal is to become the kind of person who could accomplish that goal. Once you've learned how to learn lose 40 pounds, if you ever needed to do it again, you could. If you could just snap your fingers and lose 40 pounds, I don't know, say liposuction, the reason it doesn't work is because you're not the kind of person who could lose 40 pounds. So you're going to gain it all back. The purpose of a goal is to become a new person. It's like leveling up in a video game. That's the goal. The goal is not necessarily to get the outcome. It's to be the kind of person who could get that outcome over and over again. It is to make something that you could not do before easy, or at least accomplishable now. It is to permanently level yourself up. That is the real purpose of a goal. And in fact, for most goals, even like the certification example, you still have 50% of the knowledge to get that goal. And that if you were to take this test again or re-enter the process again in the near term before you forgot it, you would find that you have about 50% of the knowledge you need to get there, and you're still 50% of the way there. You are 50% of the way changed to becoming that new person, such that every step you take towards your goal is inherently just as valuable as the final step. Yes, there are some outcomes that you get for a little bonus at the end, but fundamentally, it is the becoming that is the reward, not the having. And this requires a mind shift. And the reason we make that shift, besides it being, in my mind, fundamentally true for most goals, is that it changes the reward structure. If your goal is to lose 40 pounds in six months, you're probably not going to be very happy until six months from now when you've lost 40 pounds, even in the best case. So whether you're rewarding yourself emotionally or not for the stuff along the way, you can add additional rewards along the way when you reframe the goal as, I am becoming the kind of person I want to be. If you're 50% of the way there, you have 50% of the reward. So it's motivating to take the next step because the next step gives you an incremental reward when you think of it this way. If your goal is to be better at playing the violin and you have a specific piece you want to be able to play, we'll say practicing this one session is rewarding because you are thinking, I am a little bit better after this session. I am more like that person. Rather than thinking, I'm not going to be happy until I can play this piece, you're withholding that reward of accomplishing the goal until you have accomplished it. And that's a bad idea. If you can think of this like a graph, the reward 
is time across the bottom, reward at the top. Most people set goals such that you have a flat line, just like at the zero, horizontal line, and then boop, big spike right at the end as the goal reward hits. Yeah, I did it. Or even a spike down if the, you failed. And we already know whether that we don't reward ourselves on the outcome, good or bad. What if you take that spike and you smooth it out across the whole thing so that your, your reward curve across the goal really looks more like a diagonal line at a 45 degree degree angle where every step forward gives you a little bit more of that reward that's why this framing is better the purpose of a goal is to become the person who could accomplish that goal not to have the outcome of the goal it's a better framing because it gives you this sort of intrinsic reward all along the way so that's how you reframe the intrinsic reward system that plus all the other stuff we talked about before with emotional rewards Stop treating the goal line as sacred. Every step is like a little mini goal line. You get a reward all along the way. In fact, all of the strategies I'm talking about in this section are basically that. Re-engineer your goals to optimize for motivation before efficiency. This is really another mind flip for me, uh, but it's made a huge difference. Know your failure, failure modes. Chances are the reason you give up on most The reason most goals don't work is not because you did all the things you said you would and then it didn't work. Most of the time we fail because we give up, because we lose motivation. So if that is the case, why are we we constructing our goals in a way that is optimized for getting it done as fast as possible or efficiently or as cheaply as possible? Stop optimizing for efficiency because you never even get to the finish line. You give up long before you get there. We should be optimizing for motivation. Optimize for a kind of goal that makes you excited to get to the next step. That is how you should be thinking about setting your goals, even if it takes you five times longer, even if it's more expensive or more difficult overall in terms of effort. If you can find a way to re-engineer your goals so that you're excited about the next step, then you will eventually win. Optimize for the strategy that keeps you in the game, not the strategy that gets you to the finish line faster or more efficiently in any way. Optimize to keep playing. Infinite games in this case. That is the entire like overarching structure of all these little tactics I'm giving you. Optimize for a goal-setting strategy that keeps you in the game. Just keep playing. Whatever it takes, pivot however many times you need to pivot, change whatever you need to change about your goals or your habits or the plan, any of that. Stay in the game. As long as you don't give up, you're winning. Because as long as you don't give up, you are becoming more like the person who could accomplish that goal. That's the goal. Stay in the game. You win by keeping yourself playing. As long as you don't give up, you're winning. All right, so I'm going to skip this next section. We'll talk about it another time. This is already running long. Okay, so when you have a goal, write down the premise for the goal. And this is something that, man, we've had a lot of trouble with. Write down your initial motivations. Okay, you want to build this business. There's a reason why. Write down the premise, just on a piece of paper. The premise is, I want to generate an income stream doing work that I love that helps people. Right? That's the premise. That's why I've picked building this specific business. 
The reason we write down this premise is because there are going to be times when you want to give up. And you need to evaluate whether you should. And when you have written down your initial premise, this is very useful information. Let's say you want to give up six months in because it turns out what you're trying to do is generating income and you do love the work, but it's not helping people. In fact, it's doing nothing for them and maybe even hurting them a little bit. And you kind of want to give up, but you know you shouldn't because you give up all the time and your inner critic is going crazy and you're like, I don't know. You look back at your premise. I want to generate an extra income stream doing work I love that helps people. Does it still help people? No, that's why I don't like it. Oh, look at this. The premise has been invalidated. And this is giving yourself an out. This is just part of clarity. Write down the reasons why you want to accomplish this goal when you first set it, when you're excited, when you've set the strategy and you're certain it will work and you've started acting towards it. And you can't believe how awesome it's going to be when you've become that person who can do this thing. Write down the premise for why you want to do it. Because in three months from now, when you're starting to doubt yourself, and some of those reasons for doubting yourself really do seem like good reasons to give up, you need to remember why. You need to emotionally connect with the original reasons. This is a way of rebooting your motivation for the original goal. So when you look at, because you'll be wrong in so many ways, on your strategy, on how hard it is, on how long it's going to take, you're going to get you're going to get kicked over and over again. And there's going to be times when you want to give up. And there are good reasons for giving up and bad reasons for giving up. And one of the ways to limit the bad reasons for giving up, and while keeping the good reasons for giving up, because I know you, and you will, you will not quit on something long after you should have quit on something. And likewise, you will often quit on things long before you should, before you should actually give up. And one way that you can prevent this, that I have begun to think about, is what was the original premise for this goal? Is it still valid? If it's still valid, that's an indicator that maybe you should not give up and you should keep going for a while longer. See this through. Find a different strategy. Re-engineer for motivation. But it looks like the premise still holds. It looks like you could still make money. It looks like you do still like the work. It does look like it will still help people. Awesome. Well, the premise isn't invalidated. But if any of those things are invalidated, well, actually, it turns out it looks like it's not going to make much money. Well, that's a pretty good reason to quit. Now, you can do things about that, and that's the next and final section that we're going to talk about. Um, but consider that approach. Just write down your premise and revisit it at your darkest times to understand, oh, this is a good reason for giving up or a bad reason for giving up. Sort of lets you off the hook. Okay. So one thing you might consider as well is reflecting on why you've given up on similar goals in the past. Just write down the top three reasons for why you gave up on similar goals when you're about to embark on a new one. Okay. Because chances are those problems have not been solved and they will occur again. Now, if you can't, if you don't want to do that, also write down just a hand few, or in addition to, write down a few reasons why you think this current plan will fail. Um, I think I may have mentioned this in the past, but we'll talk about the concept again because it's relevant now. This is called pre-pivoting on failures. So what you want to do is, let's say 
beyond just your own internal struggles of wanting to give up and why you've given up on similar goals in the past. Maybe there are like context specific stuff like, well, I actually don't know if there's a market for this. Like, I don't know if the, the customers I'm seeking actually have the ability to pay for this or if the problem is big enough to pay what I'm trying to get. I don't know if there are like regulatory problems. Write down the top three, your biggest fears for why you think this goal will fail. Now, this is robot strategy mode. Remember, strategize separate from effort. This is part of the strategy. Think about why you failed in the past. Think about why you think this will fail. Write down those one to six reasons. Now, I want you to imagine that it happens. The exact failure you think is going to happen does happen. Three months in, it turns out the customers you are trying to seek, well, it looks like, yeah, they don't have the ability to pay for this. Turns out you, you're mostly targeting college students and the college students can't really pay for the thing you're trying to sell, for, sell them. They don't have any money. Now, hold that scenario in your head. Come up with one, two, or three ways you can solve that right now. This is pre-pivoting. So people talk about in business, you know, you pivot when things go wrong. You need to pre-pivot on the most likely failure modes. And the reason we do this is because while you're in cool, cold robot strategy mode, who is not in the thick of things, it's a lot easier to come up with a better strategy. So come up with your plan B, C, and D for each one of these failure modes. Oh, well, in that case, uh, I, maybe I can get financial aid to pay for this, or maybe there's a way to get it covered under student loans, or maybe they could get grants for this, or maybe I can find um, some way for them to pay for this out of earnings. Like, I don't know, maybe if you're teaching them a skill, like, well, the course is free, um, but I take, you know, up to 20% of their earnings while they work with me on this affiliate program up until they've paid off the course. Like there are ways to solve this that you could think of in your head when you're not in the middle of it. Because when you've just been kicked in the face and turns out customers can't pay for the thing you're trying to sell them right now, you are not in the mental state to strategize well. And when you have plans for all of these failure modes ahead of time, it's part of the plan. They don't feel like failures. They feel like, ah, I've planned for this. That means that I'm going to try this. It's like, if this, then that, rather than, oh, it didn't work, I give up, <laughs> right? You're sort of forecasting failure, alternative success, right? When you forecast the obstacles and you forecast your plans around them, you are preparing your brain instead of reacting with dismay and disappointment and a potential to give up. You're reacting with, ah, I foresaw this, then that. I Now we, we pivot to this other plan. I have a plan for this. And it's no guarantee of success, but it, it starts to reframe problems as just like an inflection point. Oh, that means we changed the course. Course correction, subtle course correction. The gentle correction of a kindergarten teacher correcting a five-year-old who has just drawn the letter A incorrectly. It's not a moment for crisis and like, oh, it was all never gonna work. Like this was a dumb idea. There's no opportunity for that because you already have a path to take and that can make all the difference. So that's basically all I'm gonna talk about from now. Um, oh, well, I got one more thing, one more thing, and then we'll wrap this up. When I say optimize for motivation, 
When you're setting goals, think about what is my reward loop. So let's take writing, for example. When I was trying to become a better writer, I'm still trying, uh, but when this was a primary focus for me in life, I learned that my failure mode was motivation and that I was likely to fail at my task of get it, becoming a better writer primarily because I gave up. Primarily because I gave up because it was hard and I was getting no reward out of it. So I discovered when I share my stories with people, I feel good. And when they read it, just to hear them say they read it, never mind whether they liked it or not, just to know another person thought enough to read my story and cared was enough. That positive hit created a feedback loop. Ah, yeah, it was really painful to write this story, uh, but the person I shared it with said, oh, that was cool. Thanks for sharing that. Um, or even just like talked about it with me. That was enough. It was enough that somebody cared. It created a feedback loop, positive reinforcement. And that I realized I needed these little morsels of external motivation in addition to my own internal motivation. So when you engineer your goals, think about less about the strategy of how you'll get there and more about the strategy of how will I continually motivate myself? To use another example, here is a bad strategy. Oh, I'm trying to get better at writing. So after I write my short stories, I will submit them for feedback. Terrible idea, because feedback is generally a, a critical, often negative experience. It is primarily an act of other people telling you what you've done wrong. And when you're optimizing for motivation, that is not a good approach. So what you should do is separate your positive feedback loop from your critical improvement loop. These are two different things. Reward yourself for having done the thing you said you would. Go get that little extrinsic morsel. Heck yeah, I'm going to share my story and I'm going to let them all know that I don't want critical feedback. I just want them to, to let, them, let me know if they read it or not. Yep, I read your story. Awesome. Yes, feels good. Good. That has sealed the positive feedback loop. A little reward. Separately, I will go seek critical feedback on my writing. But this is different, right? It's not the same step. It, I will go do that on my own when I'm ready for it. When I am in the mental state to improve myself and I do not treat this as my positive feedback loop because I know that it's an actively dis motivation destroying thing. It might make my skills better, which is awesome, but if I'm in a vulnerable place when I get hit with the wrong critical feedback, I will want to give up. So I reach out on my own actively to get critical feedback when I'm ready to improve a skill. I don't just do it passively. Like I separate the sharing of what I'm doing to get that positive feedback loop from the asking for feedback on my skills, which can be is typically a very negative and demoralizing thing, but it does make you better. So the goal is to keep your motivation high enough so that when you're ready to seek critical feedback to improve, you can take those hits without losing so much motivation that you want to give up. So there we have it. Um, that's good enough for now. I'll be doing more goal setting episodes, but that's the gist. If you feel like you're your own worst enemy, if your inner critic, inner critic is tearing you apart and you just give up on anything you try, 
take these methods to heart. Change the way you emotionally reward yourself. Build a better model of your thoughts and desires. And don't just assume that because you had a thought or a feeling that it's yours. You, that's a separate step. You get to decide what is you. And you can gently correct and reject the thoughts and feelings that bubble up that are not you. And you can course correct them. And in time, they will stop happening very often. And you will start getting good, reassuring thoughts and feelings. And those are awesome. They want you to keep going. Furthermore, just change the entire way you set goals. Try to set goals that motivate you and make sure that you are winning at every step by doing the things you said you would do and acting with confidence. Reward input. Output is for strategy, it's for robots. Input is for emotions. Good jobs, bad jobs, backpats, I don't know what the, the negative version of a backpack is. <laughs> the middle finger. I don't know. Inputs, emotion. Effort, emotion. Outcome, strategy, robots, intellectual. Separate these things. Make sure you're rewarding yourself constantly for acting like the person you want to be. Forget about the outcome, whether it's good or bad. All right. Practice, 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 practice. This won't happen overnight, but it will happen over six months worth of nights. And when you screw up, when you forget, when you realize it's been two weeks of you being more like your old self instead of your new self, what do we do? Do we beat ourselves up? Nope. Gentle course correction. Oh, that's not how we act. I remember now. We act like this. This is who I am. And this has been The Fix. Now, get to work. <laughs>